0: Hi, my name is Mandy jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the bookshop. As a little girl, I dreamed of living in far-off lands. At night, I'd soak in the colors of saris worn by women in India, or savor the scents floating from a Middle Eastern market, while Scheherazade spun her magic over me and King Sharia, And after a thousand and one nights had passed, my mother turned to Heidi. She'd read a chapter, tuck me in and kiss me goodnight, and I'd watch the light from the hallway disappear as she closed the door to the bedroom I shared with my sister. To escape the terror of darkness, I'd close my eyes and imagine snowflakes drifting from a darkened sky. And across a valley, the peak of the Matterhorn was the last thing I'd see before the Sleep Fairy ushered me into a world of dreams. Books were plentiful in my family home, scattered on coffee tables, squished into bookcases, and stacked at the end of my bed on Christmas morning. Mum and Dad's love of books and reading continued after their deaths, when my siblings and I gathered around bookcases to share their sacred collection. Until recently, I hadn't realized the connection between the stories and fairy tales my parents read to me and my place in the world. Nor did I realize the profound effect fantasy fiction had on my need to travel and live in other countries. I was born in a small rural town in Victoria, Australia, with a population nudging just over 400 residents. From there, my family moved to Tasmania, the little heart-shaped island south of Victoria. In essence, I couldn't have been further from the geographical locations and exotic people from my bedtime stories. And this was perhaps the greatest gift my parents gave me, for it planted the seed of exploration to see how others lived, the food they ate, what they wore, the songs they sang, and the stories they shared. At 16, I set off to mainland Australia to begin my journey. From there I went to England and finally made it across to Europe, to the Alps. I didn't see the Matterhorn as I'd chosen instead to ski in Austria. I drank schnapps and hot chocolate and practiced speaking high school German to locals. I even bought a Dirndl, which did wonders for my cleavage. In the village of Kirchberg and later in the city of Vienna, I experienced a connection of sorts – The same skin-prickling sensation occurred when I stepped foot in Florence, Italy, a city which pulls at my soul. I could have stayed in the same place where I grew up, but for the nagging innate draw to history, my ancestral history, and a need and want to immerse myself in other cultures. In doing so, I've learned that not all English-speaking countries are the same, nor do the people who live there comprehend the language as I do. And this brings to life the concept of how personal choices are shaped by the area we live in and the people around us. Why is it that a mother born in the same year as me makes political decisions so drastically different from my own? In essence, I have to believe we both want access to good health care and to see the minimum wage reflect the cost of living. We both want our children to be raised in a healthy world and to drink clean water. So, how and when did common sense issues become subjective? In search of answers, I turn to Mary Doria Russell's book, The Sparrow, and ponder why people with parallel ideals choose such vastly different paths when confronted with choices. I look at history, in particular, leaders who chose to lead with dignity, grace, and respect— rather than bullying and fear. I consider the thin, fragile barriers that often define religions and cults. When did morals such as kindness and respect become political issues rather than shared ideology? Or is it something as simple as while I see the water is dirty, my doppelhanger believes it to be clean? Or has she lost her voice? I think of the grandfather in the story, Heidi, a character who terrified me as a child, and the possessor of a powerful character arc. It took a five-year-old orphan girl whose eyes and heart were full of wonder of the Swiss countryside to turn him around. So what is it that makes some people blind to empathy and compassion? Is it anger for the life they're living, of being without material goods, or in some cases, necessities such as food, Or do they have a hunger for power and greed? Is it as Buddhism suggests that by identifying the presence of and determining the cause of suffering, only then do we become free? When I look at photos of starving children, this concept fails me. Can moral standards be learned? And if so, who is the teacher? Family? Friends? And if either of these fail to embed moral values, will the child learn these important traits at school? Is there a cutoff age when morality can't be taught? Technology enables us to microscopically scrutinize the behavior of others. When leaders of countries, sports teams, actors, or anyone in the media behave badly, it is seen by viewers worldwide, and many see this as a chance to mirror their behavior. And just like that, moral decency slips into decline. There is a vast difference between a football player taking a knee and a person in power defending such ideals as white supremacy. And yet, the latter for many is viewed as acceptable, while the football player is seen as being disrespectful. My parents were environmentalists. They were also conservatives, although now they would be seen as liberals. They cared deeply for others, delivered food to members of the community when needed, took in children who needed a place to stay, all while they had me and my three siblings to clothe, feed, and educate. They never said no when one of us brought home a stray animal. They grew vegetables, taught their kids to cook, and one of them always had a story to tell. All of this while they both worked full-time and more. I sit here at my desk, tapping away on my keyboard, cats and dog beside me, and look over the monitor at the bookcase my parents left me and had insisted be shipped over to my home here in California. As if in answer to my questions, the well-worn cover of A Thousand and One Nights catches my eye. I hear Mum's voice. I confess, most lovely Scheherazade, that your wit has disarmed me. Mum looks at me and says, You see, Mandy, love conquers all. Westside Books is an independent bookstore in the historic Highlands neighborhood of northwest Denver, providing new used and unusual books to the community since 1997. Westside Books is owned by Lois Harvey and the store manager is Matt Aragon. Welcome both of you to the Bookshop Podcast.
1: I'm glad to be on it, thank you.
0: How are you, Lois?
1: Doing well
2: this morning, Mandy, thanks.
0: Lois, can you share with us the history of Westside Books? How long have you been in the book business and a little about Capitol Hill Books?
2: Well, all in all, I've been in the book business more than 40 years, but um, West Side Books started in September of 1997. Um, My brother, Jim, and I, he's the art and curio person, and I'm the book person, and he kind of got pushed out. The book took over. And it was in the neighborhood in which I lived and he lived. And that was the advantage. We were both coming off of 20-year stints in other businesses. He had been managing the Colorado Ballet. And as a musician, I had been owner-manager of Capitol Hill Books down in downtown Denver. Both of us were just a little burned with the lives we'd been living and were looking for change. And so the partnership seemed um, a good fit. And I thought maybe I was going to get away from books after I sold West Side Books in '95, But the pull was very strong. Pull is always strong for books, I guess. The other part of it was just book people. Being around book people is uh,
0: addictive. And Matt, what do you think makes West Side Books a standout bookshop?
1: I think what makes us different is the customer interaction. We're very personal with our customers. I have learned from Lois that talking to people, leaving notes, sending messages, you know, via snail mail, email, phone call, it really amps up people and makes them become better customers, I think.
0: Lois, what do you think makes Westside Books a standout bookshop?
2: Um, Westside Books is a standout bookshop because it really depends on individual relationships between the bookseller and the customer, the client. And I will say a lot of our clients are friends. And I think that developing those relationships has made it a standout bookshop. But it also, I think, has to do with... um, the particular taste and direction that the bookshop has developed over all those years. Um, I think I've learned a lot from my customers and clients and they've learned some from me too, I'm sure, but we try to sort of curate the collection in some way so that um, we reflect the diversity that we think is important in the world.
0: What would you say is the average age of your customers and have you seen a significant change in your readers' age since the pandemic started,
2: you know, I, in some ways, well, I've been seeing it. I think for the, a bit before this, been seeing younger customers, and um, I think booksellers had been bemoaning the the gray hairedness of uh, of our industry for a long time. But when I started seeing younger people interested in the physical book, was a few years ago, and that really was amplified in COVID. Um, I've always had younger customers, like seven-year-olds who I watched grow up and graduate from high school and then bring their own kids in. And I used to call them the, the hipsters. You know, when the hipsters started discovering West Side books, it was it was just kind of fun to have that, that young adult energy, you know, the 20-somethings who had read enough to know stuff, but were still very curious. And I think that's what I love about book people is they're curious. And certainly I'm not trying to say at all that older people are no longer curious because they are. They come in with some piece of interest, an interest they're pursuing or author that they got curious about. But to see the younger people be curious and willing to wander around and then finally get brave enough to ask a question or something has been really
1: um, revitalizing for me.
0: How do you see the age range coming into the store, Matt?
1: Average customer, I want to say between you know twenty five and or maybe seventy. We have a wide variety of customers, um, and oh, of course, kids. A lot of kids come in with their families. Um, I've noticed just in general that a lot more people are reading.
0: Well, that's great to hear, and I would actually agree. And Matt, have you seen the introduction of an online browsing experience and reaching out with social media and email orders as a much needed asset to Westside Books?
1: I do. I really do. Um, especially with COVID happening, we, I think we were closed a couple of weeks um, and a lot of people were still wanting to support us. And I think it was just kind of Lois and I at the store taking phone calls, purely doing phone orders and then shipping books and we just kept thinking you know we really really need to get online and there were there's a lot of tools available for bookstores like us uh, to get online so we were looking into that and now we finally have an online store and it's so exciting to get online orders and i know other companies are probably like oh you know pusha online orders but for us i think it's special I've been getting orders from customers just around our neighborhood. You know, they could easily just come to the store, but I think they're supporting us by ordering online as well.
0: Now, Lois, in an article from July 31st, 2020 edition of the Denver Post, you were quoted as saying, Lois finally caved and tried to create a browsing experience online, offering free shipping and home deliveries, as well as book bundles selected by staff. How do you find the online setup is working for you? And are you finding it a work in progress?
2: Work in progress is a good phrase. <laughs> and it's it's because it's been continually shifting. It's been shifting sands um, also, I guess I'll
0: say. Do you feel brave about taking this new step?
2: I don't know if I could can ever consider myself brave, but I, but I have certainly been more willing to take chances lately as I saw the ship of books floundering. You know, for years it was very hard to keep the book business afloat. And then when I got this spark of people really want this, then I could come back and say, okay, gotta try this, we gotta go for this. And um, Matt, been a wonderful addition to my staff who has helped me feel like I could do this. And then when Irena, Came on board um, with with some experience from bookstores. You know, I was delivering books by hand and Matt was delivering books by hand. Um, I never quite got the bicycle thing going. It just as it was hitting, the weather was getting warm and lovely. But uh, we were told by the city we couldn't do side door pickup. And I was just incensed. You know, if I can pick up food down the street, you know, at the, side, at the back door, pick up and Let them deliver. Why can't people pick up books? But they held us off from side door pickup for a while. And that's why we really had to go into a little overdrive to uh, get books to people. Um, we, We were on the phone a lot. We were answering emails. We weren't open, but we were doing our best to enlarge our new book stock because that seemed to be what people were asking for mainly was new releases. So we kind of upped our
0: game on that. Westside Books has a collection of new and used books. Do you sell more fiction or nonfiction or new or used?
2: You know, I've never had a real sense of weight one way or another. People are interested in current topics, though so they do buy nonfiction. They're interested in history and poetry, How wherever you put poetry, you know. So, but, and then fiction is another piece of it, older fiction, classic fiction. To see people ask for books like The Plague it was wonderful in some ways. You know, yeah, read a little Camus. Just, oh my goodness. And then um, things like the um, post, the dystopian novels, and, but, but also contemporary stuff, certainly with the Black Lives Matters movement, um, racial issues. Um, we sold a lot you know, we sold James Baldwin, and it was wonderful to sell things that you know we always knew were wonderful, but then people were asking for them. So let me answer your question. It's really been sort of equally weighted in my mind. I don't have figures to tell me one thing or another. As far as how much stock is in the store, fiction, nonfiction, it's, um, it's probably also pretty equilateral.
0: Well, knowing people are choosing a variety of fiction, nonfiction, classics, sci-fi, fantasy, gives me hope for a better educated society.
2: That's the other reason I love selling books, Mandy, is I just figure the more we know, if we, if we are curious, we will be better informed citizens have um, have a basis upon which to make our decisions.
0: Can you talk about the shift from only selling used books to selling new and used books? I actually love this idea. And I think it's a plus for the customer.
2: Well, thank you. I think we, we did start doing that early on at Westside Books. I had a very small curated new book section, but it has grown. I was trying to be respectful of the new ind- independent bookstores here locally and not uh, get into anybody's territory. But when my customers asked me for a book that I could get, that's when I started saying, okay, I will I will do that. I will get that book for you. And then that section kind of grew. But, you know, just like Denver is just like other cities in that there are we're all little tight, little neighborhoods, little pockets. And, and I really wanted always to be of service to my neighborhood. And so that, I think, was part of that. But now with the internet, we're all one big neighborhood. It's a, it's a much different thing. But so people choose, you know, what they call their neighborhood.
0: That's a great phrase. And I've noticed that since March 2020, whenever I'm on my morning or afternoon or, le- you know, early evening walks... I've noticed families that I didn't even know lived in the neighborhood, and we have a small neighborhood. And I think what's happened is before the pandemic, these families were, you know, had really busy lives. They were up early in the morning, getting the kids ready for school, getting the kids to school, going to work themselves or working from home. And now it's changed drastically. And it's really comforting to see families out together walking. Previously, I only knew people by the name of their dogs. (laughs) And so that has really changed. And with that has come a sense of community. And that sense of community has kind of been the thing that keeps me going. Because without that, I think humanity is lost. And I like to think that this sense of community is like that ripple effect whereas not only are we acknowledging people in our community or our neighborhood, but we're also paying tribute to the small businesses within our community and helping them. And I mean, that's the reason I'm doing this podcast, because I want to support authors and independent bookshops.
2: That's wonderful to hear it. You you, you stated it very beautifully and, and coherently. And Truth, that's the truth of it, I think. I think with the just like you have your favorite bakery, but with books, it's a little, it's even a little more intimate, I suppose, in some ways.
0: I, for one, would rather wait a week or 10 days for a book that I order through a small independent bookshop than to have it rushed overnight, just because I've decided right then that's when I need the book. I honestly think it's about building relationships And it kind of goes back from an author point of view where you're building relationships with your characters in a book or their circumstances, if you're writing fiction, and from the bookseller to the book buyer. You are building that relationship and it's super important. And yeah, it is an intimate relationship because you're talking about taste, something that you want to read and knowing as a bookseller what you think your customer is going to like to read.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, I, I do think that's been one of the challenges is knowing that people could get anything anywhere, you know, overnight and, and asking that of our customers, can you be patient enough to have this experience? And that, I guess, is the other piece of website books. And I know other Indies too, is the experience of, uh, of having... The exchange, not just of a, a piece of piece of bound in
0: cloth. Yeah, the book itself becomes a personal relationship when it's sold within a local indie bookstore. That's my thoughts on it. Now Lois, before I move on to a question about books with you, I'd like to ask Matt, do you merchandise the books on the shop floor, mixing them old and new, or are they separated?
1: So we do have our new and used separate. The only time where they're kind of together is in a few special sections like our beat section, Beat in 60s. And stuff at the register could be new and used. But predominantly, we, we have a separate new book area, and most of the store is used books, actually.
0: Lois, I'm quite fussy about how people handle my books, and I know I'm not alone in feeling like this. Can you explain to our listeners the best way to handle a book, paperback and hardcover, and precisely why this is super important when handling vintage and antiquarian books?
2: You're right, I'm very particular about that, and I've sort of uh, sometimes with with children, I will say, you know, you have you you want to think of this book as as your little baby brother or sister that it it needs to be handled very gently and when you open it you don't just crack everything and throw it around you want to you want to treat it with respect and and hold it cradle it in your hand cradle it in one hand and leaf through it with the other so i use that baby analogy quite a bit especially with vintage books but hardbacks and softbacks, you have to learn to handle them so that they're not so that they're usable for a long time. That's what we want out of our books is we want we want our friends to be with us for a long time. so so that's one of the things I always say is it's a two-handed operation. You hold something and handle it gently, and carefully, support it, um, especially with vintage books. Having a flat surface for a vintage book but not so flat that one side just flops and the hinges break is is another piece of it.
0: Yeah, my other pet peeve is when I see someone holding a book and they turn the page from the spine, like inwards, and you're just waiting for the small rip on that page. So let's talk about the perfect way to turn a page.
2: Thank you for saying that. Because that and that's one of the things with children especially, though, they'll they'll pull a book out and they'll they'll just reach up at the top and 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 I could I almost can't even do it myself the way it's done wrong because it's so many years of of saying, you no know, if you if you hold it and cradle it and then start up in the upper corner and and just get the one page, don't bend it, and then open it from there. It won't tear, it won't get folded funny. Um, you'll have, as I said, you'll have your book for a long time if you just open it correctly and turn the page correctly.
0: Any other tips about caring for our books?
2: Books that are on shelves that are too tight. It's hard to get a book out that is too tight on your shelf. And that's another thing you want to be careful with because you can, you can damage the top of the spine of the book um, by trying to pull it out by its spine from a place of shelf where it's too tight so you need just enough room and what is recommended is that if you have books you push back the adjacent books so that there's room to to grasp the spine of the book not at the top where it, there's more danger but to get two fingers on either side of it so it comes out of the shelf safely this book might might be something really special to you or to someone else. Start at the top, gently open the page. Yeah, finding words that aren't judgmental, that don't put people off, uh, help them have respect for something that is an artifact as well as a piece of information.
0: And there've been times when I've watched a movie and an actor or an actress is, has a in their possession an antique book, say from the 1800s or something like that, And they wipe their forehead, and then they turn a page. And there's no gloves or anything like that on. What is the etiquette there? Are you supposed to wear gloves when you're handling, you know, a certain era book?
2: Well, I I think it depends on on your setting sometimes. But um, there's a Johnny Depp movie where he's a a rare book dealer, a really despicable one actually. But he makes a deal with the devil, and he's handling a 15 century 16th century book and smoking over it and drinking whiskey and just kind of running throwing it in his knapsack and running off down the street and I had the same reaction just chills (laughs) sometimes we watch that at Halloween because it's exactly the wrong way to handle a book it's a horror show you don't always need gloves if you have a clean area your hands are clean never have drinks or ink pens near old books
0: and speaking about older books and the care of books, can you share information about the Bookworkers Guild with us, please?
2: They are artists and they are craftsmen. And um, if you have a book that needs attention, that is maybe not in good repair, I would certainly look for a Bookworkers Guild in your region and talk to somebody who is a professional. Uh, one of the things bookworkers can do is build clamshell boxes or regular slip cases for books that need protection, that maybe you don't want to necessarily go through all the extensive and expensive repair and conservation of an older book, but just build a box for it, have a box built for it that protects it and keeps it in its original state. But there's also the art of the book, in which hand, books are handmade, special bindings, uh, paper. You can find paper makers. You can certainly find calligraphers. The Book Workers Guild encompasses a, a range of skills and um, proficiencies. There are some people who deal only in documents. Um, just look them up and, and see. It. You know, one of the things they did, um, the edible book, the Book Workers Guilds participated in a an event called the Edible Book, which takes place on April first of every year, and that is a national and actually international event. And books can be made of all kinds of materials. Is the point of this, and it's a fun way to get introduced to the scope of what a book is.
0: What does a day in the life of a bookshop owner look like?
2: You walk in. You you make sure you've answer, You've listened to the messages on the phone, and then reply to people, you read emails. There's a lot of email reading and responding. There's a lot of stuff on the phone. We're always excited when we get to actually handle books because sometimes there's so much communication that goes on with customers that you feel like that's half your day. But book orders can come in, which need to be checked in. Customers need to be called for their special orders. We have ordering to do all day. Special projects where we'll get to go over to a section and really fine-tune and spiff up a section. Um, Sometimes we have to call out older titles, books that have been on the shelf too long. That's one of the jobs. So the Booksellers Day can involve cleaning the bathroom, uh, doing book is one of our fun jobs. Conversations with people is is the delight of the day. I would say, but you know, you still have to sweep the floor and and get the books out of the boxes and onto the shelves. It's physical. A bookseller's day is very physical.
0: And are you a member of the American Booksellers Association? And do you speak with other booksellers about what they're buying and selling?
2: Yeah, we're we're a member of several. Organizations, but the American Booksellers Association is one. The Regional Mountains and Plains Independent Booksellers Association is another. And I find both of those helpful. I think the regional one is probably the one I'm in touch with most and feel, of course, closest to. There are people who are. In my Rocky Mountain area, who are booksellers and and um, representatives of book companies, um, that's a, an old, established, venerable organization, too. But the ABA, the American Booksellers Association, has certainly helped us a lot with getting online um, indie commerce is their program that we subscribe to, which helps us have a little more visibility in the world and in a way to participate in, in the new book world, in the antiquarian book world. There are other organizations that we belong to. Um, we are not a member of the antiquary, American Antiquarian Booksellers Association, which is, I, and I call them the, the higher end booksellers, but there's, there's books of all range there. There's a little organization called the Rocky Mountain Antiquarian Booksellers Association that I was a charter member of back when it was just Colorado. Organizations, I feel, are very helpful to keeping a sense of camaraderie and sharing uh, um, a, a way to share problems as well as successes.
0: And how often do you order books? Is this something that's ongoing daily?
2: You know, we don't do pre-orders. Some places like Amazon, of course, um, will say, you know, you can pre-order. So they get a really clear idea how many they might want and then speculate from there. Um, we're small enough that we we kind of, I guess, do the same thing on a small scale. Oh, so-and-so is going to want one of these, so-and-so is going to want one of these Then multiply that by the people you know, you you know the tip of the iceberg, what's the rest of the iceberg look like? But it's really it's really by feel. And some of it is how much I I don't like to just be part of the the wave of bestsellers either. I I figure somebody's doing a good job of that. Costco does that, you know. We're there to make sure people can see and find the books that are a little less that are a little under the radar maybe and um You know the science books that Science Friday on NPR talked about, or the the literary things, or sometimes lately the dystopian novels, the the gay, lesbian, queer uh, literature that's really making a huge some huge I think in the publishing world these days, Uh, making sure that you know really good children's literature is there for people, not just the current bestseller. You know, we saw reprints of old things like Mike Milligan and his steam shovel.
0: And is there a book in particular that you would like to see everyone read? Let's start with you on this question, Matt.
1: One of my favorite books is American Gods by Neil Gaiman. And I would like everyone to read it just because I'm a nerd and like mythology. And I love how Neil Gaiman writes mythology into his books. so I would say that book is really good. The only thing I think is, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea.
0: And what are you currently reading?
1: I am currently audiobooking Leave the World Behind, and I am reading Homegoing by Yaa ja Jesse.
0: And how about local authors?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm learning more about the local scene, and I'm probably going to match with Lois here, but Kali Ferjado amstein Um, She was just here, actually, a few minutes ago finding books. I love her book. It's great. It's great talking about a Latinx community in Denver, stories of women and Indigenous women as well. It's funny because I didn't really know her. Uh, I knew she worked at Westside Books, but we became friends through social, social media. And then now we're just promoting her book and Coming in asking for our recommendations, and it's just a fun world.
0: A little later, I'll follow up on the Latinx community that you brought up. But what about you, Lois? Is there a book that you'd like to see everyone read?
2: You know, I just read Becoming Duchess Goldblatt. That's sort of a segue to what I've read other things too. but, But I did come away from that feeling like that was a lovely integration. I could read that again because I felt like there were just so many little pearls of wisdom and a sense of being in the real world at the same time that you're not in the real world. I don't know if you know about it. It has to do with the woman who started a, a Twitter account. And she's a wonderful writer. She, and she ended up publishing this book, which is about being a fictional character in her Twitter world and ha- affecting people in a positive way in that Twitter world, which, as we all know, virtual reality is is a part of our reality. And it's not, um, we live in two worlds. We live in multiple worlds. And um, so that's one that is my, my current favorite. I mean, I think there's always things like Charlotte's Web that I want everybody to have read. I want there are books that come up to the counter. And we've when people ask me my favorite book, it's the toughest question in the world too, because it's like having 18 children. They're all my favorite. You know? <laughs> What's your answer?
0: I mean, I need to interview Well, like you, I have many books that I adore, but my favorite is one that I reviewed for Saga Press by Michael Mocock in 2016. And it was a hardback edition that they republished over here in the States of Michael Moorcock's Gloria Anna or The Unfulfilled Queen. I just adore Michael Moorcock's writing. And since then, I've read a few more of his books, but I'm a sucker for this book. It's the one that I give if I want to give a gift to someone. I just find it's so beautifully written, absolutely gorgeous. And while it's a piece of fantasy, Moorcock deals with issues that are quite relevant for today. And another book that I adore is written by a man called A.B. Facey called A Fortunate Life. It's kind of a classic in Australia, and many of the high schools have it as required reading. But it's the story of a man born in the outback in 1894 in Australia And he tells his story about the difficulties he had to endure as a little boy and growing up and the tragedies around his life, including time he spent in the trenches in World War One, but for all the heartache and the hardship that he endured in his life. And yet the title of the book is A Fortunate Life. And so everything that happened to him is turned into good, even though when you read it, you're just thinking, how did anyone survive this? But it's a wonderful book and simply written because A.B. Facey was a self-taught reader. So it kind of gives you a bit of an inkling. But yeah, that is another of my favorite books. Like you, I have many, but they are the top two that I would recommend.
2: Very good to know. You know, and I've been a bookseller for so long. There are books like that that I've forgotten about. But I don't know if I ever read Gloriana. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And I will mention one more to you, which is out of print, called The Woman Who Lived in the Prologue. That's a book that I look for everywhere because I want people to read it, and it's just not available. But A Woman Who Lived in the Prologue, The Woman Who Lived in a Prologue.
0: And do you currently have a favorite local author?
2: Of course, right at this moment, my favorite forever is going to be um, Kali Fajardo-Anstein, is a local writer who's made it really big in the national scene. And her book, Sabrina and Karina, is a book of short stories, which was up for the National Book Award and won the American Literature Award, um, which is a special award for, for special books. I'll, I'll let you look that up. But, so Kali, um, I think I met her when she was eleven or twelve, and she's in her thirties now and a very accomplished person and deep thinker. And her book she'll have a novel out next year, too. So at this moment, she's my absolute favorite, but I sort of feel attached to her in some some many ways. And she actually worked for me at the bookstore. Um, so she ended up Going on to college and becoming a famous author, <laughs> and she's a speaker. She's got a sensibility about life, and that that I think really needs to be understood. She's a she's a person who taught me the term microaggression, and I think uh, we all need to be aware of how women, people of color, people who are different um, perceive the world. And I think understanding. That term microaggressions is part of it.
0: And Matt, what do you like most about being the manager of Westside Books?
1: Some days I just look around and I'm like, oh my gosh, I work at a bookstore. A lot of us, when we were teenagers, well, myself, I was like, oh, I want a cool job. You know, like I want to work at a cafe or a CD store. And here I am with the cool job. I just recommend books all day. I help people with books. I get to learn more about books. I feel like I learn so much and I feel like I've gotten really in touch with the older generation, like a little bit older generation than my generation. I feel like I've learned so much from those people and enough so that they'll come, a lot of older customers will come in and they will just talk to me as if we're friends and I consider them friends. And I think it's a beautiful world to think of all these people liking one thing in common, which is reading.
0: Yeah, I find that image really comforting. And Lois, what is it about your job that you love the most?
2: I do like the people the most, and that's that's so you know, for an introvert to say that is is pretty, <laughs> that's what I, like. I mean. I like that that people can be themselves and explore explore their lives. Um, The books are great. I've always, I've loved books from a child. I was sure that I was reading a book at three years old, but I'm sure I just had it memorized. But the fact is that um, they're just, the books are friends. The the book people are friends. It's the
0: people. Seems everything comes back to relationships. Matt, were you born and raised in Denver?
1: I am born and raised in Denver.
0: Can you share with us a little about the city?
1: I went to high school uh, in this area, close to the bookstore. And actually I used to shop here in high school. I used to come in and be, I told Lois, I was like, I, remember, I don't know if you remember me, but I was that kid that always came in here and probably didn't buy stuff. A couple of my friends and I would always go into West Side Books and just browse. Funny that I'm here now, it's just like, oh, my high school is just a few blocks away. This area is heavily gentrified. The community, it was like a, it was, I think, originally a Scottish community. Uh, The Highlands is where that came from, I believe. And then a lot of the community was Chicano or Latin people. You could see, like, in the past, the individual houses and the affordable stores and coffee shops. There used to be all these things, but on this row, 32nd Street, it's completely changed. Um, It is uppity, ritzy. I did struggle, you know, my first year working up here because it's almost like I couldn't handle the change from when I was younger. And yet, I feel like West Side Books is like the sword in the stone, like they're unmoved. You know, we have, she has, I don't want to say, what is the word? Not defeated, but she's stood her ground in this changing community. There are new coffee shops that have really expensive drinks. There are, there's a wine place. There's all these fancy boutiques, which nothing against them. Great for these small businesses. But I would never, personally, I would never shop in those stores. I mean, I think I saw like a shirt hanging on a rack for $80 in one of these boutiques. And I'm just like, this is so crazy because this was not the richest area in the past, and now it's very ritzy. Um, for example, I was looking into moving in, into an apartment up here, and it was it was about two thousand dollars for one bedroom, and that is not affordable for me.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, affordable housing is an issue in major cities across the. Country right now, and not just here in America, but in other major cities in the world too. Regarding the bookstore, have you found a way to work with gentrification rather than swim against it?
1: In college, I did a, an internship with a marketing agency, and working for Lois, I was just kind of like sitting there, like, "What can I do to boost this store?" Like, like she's doing great herself, you know. It was, it was all great but I was like okay well let's get online more uh let's do this more and Lois and I want to say you know not to call anybody out but I think the staff was very introverted um and I'm not saying I'm the most extroverted person but my my thought process was okay we're gentr- we're in gentrification right so let's handle that let's let's embrace the gentrification let's uh let's work with it we need to post online more we need to get online we need
0: and did that help with sales
1: she sold more new books than ever it was hard for her to kind of grasp because she was mostly a used bookstore and i will say that with me being here we've ordered tons of new books and i think this this newer crowd a lot of them just want what they want i'm not saying browsers are going away but there was a time where i felt like we were just ordering so many new books and people didn't want to look for used books.
0: So building your online presence and your social media platforms has certainly helped by the sound of it. What social media platforms are you on?
1: Yeah, we're on everything. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Um, Just search Westside Books Denver. And your website? Mm -hmm. Westsidebooks.com. It has all the links to our social media sites.
0: Well, thanks, Matt, for being on the show. I've enjoyed learning more about Denver.
1: I'm grateful that you wanted to speak with me as well.
0: And thanks so much to you too, Lois. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
2: Well, I was gonna say one thing I, did, I neglected to mention was thanking authors, because I do think that putting yourself out there is, is such an act of, uh, of love, bravery.
0: I think you're right, Lois. It does take courage to write a book and then put it out into the world.
2: Well, and and thank you for your work.
0: You're welcome. If you're enjoying the Bookshop Podcast, please consider becoming a patron. For more information, go to www.patreon.com forward slash the bookshop podcast. Or you can go to my website, mandyjacksonbeverly.com. Click on the Bookshop Podcast and you'll find more information about me and the podcast there. From bookshop to author. Carly Fajardo Unstein is the author of Sabrina and Karina, which was recently long listed for the L.D. and Laverne Harrell Clark Fiction Prize. She also accepted the American Book Award. Carly's a finalist for the National Book Award, the Penn Bingham Prize, the Story Prize, the Saroyan International Prize and the Reading the West Award. In 2019, she was the recipient of the Denver Mayors Award for Global Impact in the Arts. Her writing has appeared in L. O. The Oprah Magazine, The American Scholar, Boston Review, Bellevue Literary Review, The Idaho Review, Southwestern American Literature, and elsewhere. Kali has been awarded fellowships from Yaddo, McDowell Colony, Tin House, and Hedgebrook. She holds an MFA from the University of Wyoming and is from Denver, Colorado. Her work has been translated into multiple languages. Hi, Carly, and welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Mandy. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're welcome. The pleasure is all mine. Carly, in one interview, you used the following words to describe yourself. A place person embedded in the Southwest, land base of ancestors. Now, your great-grandmother, Esther Fajardo, was from the Picuras Pueblo, located in an isolated valley in the northern hills of New Mexico. Have you spent time at the Picuras Pueblo? And if so, did you have a sense of nostalgia, that intrinsic melding of your indigenous roots while there? And how did this help shape your identity?
3: Yeah, so my great-grandmother, and she had seven siblings, and they all came north to Denver at different points throughout the 1920s and 1930s. And once they got to the city, they sort of severed themselves uh, because of the extreme racism and injustice and and oppression in the city. They sort of severed themselves from their indigenous and Mexican um, identity in a way. They were afraid to speak Spanish in the streets. I didn't know my great-grandmother knew or understood indigenous languages until I found an old videotape where she was telling my mother about the languages they spoke when she was a child. Um, so a lot of my work has been about trying to um, recollect play, like pieces of my identity. And one of the most interesting aspects of that is we didn't come from very far away. I'm only, you know, I'm only a couple hundred miles, if that, or 150 miles away from, you know, their center of the universe essentially. So I started going down to New Mexico, the, the northern new mexico area with my older sister when we were teenagers we started going down to ceremony and things like that and i was pretty overwhelmed with the sense of healing that i got from the land um, in my teens, in my early 20s, I really struggled with depression. And I remember feeling we were driving through the forest um, up in you know, northern Mexico. And I remember looking out at the trees and just having this feeling of like embrace of being being taken care of by the land and that is a sense of home and identity that has never left me. And it, it really informs all of my work and everything I do. Um, so yeah, I do have that like nostalgia or that. It's not, it's sort of like a home, not a homesickness, but a home longing and a home loving that I, I feel toward my my land base.
0: And along with your great grandmother, your mother, Renee Fajardo, attorney, teacher, writer, and activist, is also an extraordinary woman. I'm guessing you're lucky to have had strong women guiding you, teaching you about your heritage. So how have these women helped influence your path?
4: So, I I've had a complicated relationship with my mother throughout my life, and when I was younger, I was I really did not feel that we were similar people. And I it didn't it didn't seem that we were similar even though she was a writer and she was a storyteller and a performer and She she was so educated. But as I got older and into my late 20s and my early 30s, I really started to see what a significant influence my mother has had on me and my work. Um, She's dedicated her life to supporting our community, to supporting justice, and to helping to speak up for those who are not voiceless, but maybe their voices are not heard in a way that they need to be. Um, and she's also done a lot of work to collect our family history and our um, genealogy. And when I do research now, one of the main um, one of the main sources I use is I, I get to call it my mom, and that is such a huge gift to have as a writer and a researcher and an artist. And so my mom has had such a profound influence on my work and the person that I am. Um, I have no children of my own so far. But by the time my mother was my age, she already had five. She was on her way to seven children. Um, She always was running different nonprofits and arts organizations in town. And I really did not ever have a sense that just because you're a woman with a family means that you can't go out and create robust programming all over your city. Um, So my mom really modeled the idea that as women writers, We can both be uh, parents and working moms and artists. We can do it all. And it can be part of our identity and it doesn't need to be relegated to one aspect of who we are.
0: I think what happens too is as we age, we have a lot more understanding and patience with our parents. And I'm speaking for myself and my own mother-daughter relationship, that the patience as I became older really helped nurture that relationship.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I love that what you're saying too about the patience um, and understanding, because I think I was quick to judge my mother before I had more worldly understanding of, you know, what she was under, the kinds of pressure and the kinds of things that she was dealing with on her own.
0: My hat goes off to her for caring for seven children. Yeah. Yes. A lot of children. (laughs) In an Instagram post, you shared a photo of Denver saying that your family has been in the area for five generations. How is life for you growing up in a Denver Chicano community? And how has gentrification affected the Chicano community who were born and raised in the area?
4: I think it's been, it's it's something that I'm still processing and looking at and thinking about. I grew up somewhat in North Denver, but also somewhere in the suburbs in a, a town called Arvada. And a lot of my neighbors and my classmates had Latino surnames, but we didn't really have a cohesive identity. It was as if the, um, the center of the community had been sort of split apart, and we were sent to different parts of the city. And because of that, I didn't really, re- I didn't really understand that we were a group. That we had come from a similar shared experience and a history and a background together. Um, So I think part of the experience has been decentralizing our identity. um, And that, unfortunately, is an effect of gentrification. Um, As people are pushed out of their neighborhoods, they no longer are going to the same shops or the same church or the same restaurants. um, And we're sort of scattered throughout um, the Denver locale. Gentrification has been a very difficult subject matter for, for those of us who are native Coloradans. Um, and I, I use the term native, but I I really mean people who are just born here because (laughs) I don't mean in business Coloradans. Gentrification works as like this ongoing psychic wound. Um, so I can walk down Santa Fe in Denver and I can point at, uh, different buildings where this was once an art gallery, where we used to have monthly art openings for our community, and we would gather here. Um, and now, now it's nothing, or now it's a real estate business. And it's it's very hard to constantly carry that weight of grief with you, of the different places that you are no longer welcomed in. Um, also, not very many people I know can, uh, especially people from the community who are my age and younger, not very many of us can afford homes in the area. And so there's this ongoing feeling of, you know, this is where I come from. This is my home. This is the place that I belong to, but I can't afford to live here and to live here in permanence. Um, And so that really does do something, um, I think, to the soul. I think it's very hard, um, but we're resilient, I feel. (laughs) We, We just sort of, we just keep going. And I think hopefully in the future it'll be a little bit better. I I feel as though things maybe have the opportunity to change for the good right now.
0: Let's talk about writing and publishing. Do you set aside a certain time every day to write or do you morph between research and writing while working on a project?
4: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, My schedule really shifts depending on what's on my plate. Um, So up until 2019, I was never a full-time writer. I was a part-time office manager um, for a political nonprofit. I had done arts organization management. And so I always was working other jobs. And I would come home and I would try to write. But I think I developed a really bad habit, and that was writing into the middle of the night when I was working other jobs. And recently I've tried to kind of switch away from that. But what my schedule looks like now as someone who's sort of a full-time writer, I have some days where I have a lot of classes virtually. I um, visit uh, masters of fine arts programs virtually. And so those days they really kind of zap my energy to be creative and I, I just use them as work days. But normally, I try to wake up and just get out of the house and go to a location where I write and put in like a full shift. And that's usually around three to four hours. And that's how you get to the end of a book. Because I know that if you put in the day or put in the time most days of the week, Um, by the end of a certain amount of time, you're going to have a draft of a novel and then you can make it better.
0: (laughs) Yes, the secret of writing is writing. Now, your publisher, One World, is an imprint of Random House, a division of Penguin Random House, the world's largest trade book publisher. Congratulations, by the way. Unless you're a celebrity, landing an agent and a publishing deal is tough and can take years. How was this experience for you?
4: Yeah, it took years. It was very hard. So I graduated from my master's program in 2013, and I had written a thesis. Um, consisting of seven short stories, uh, seven of which are in my collection, Sabrina and Karina. So in 2013, I had the beginnings of this collection, a little over half of it ready to go. And the, the journey to find an agent was filled with, you know, rejection, uh, lots of letdown. And finally, I did find an agent who was brand new. Um, she was someone's assistant at the time. She was working her way up. And she she wanted to sign me, but she she thought that I needed to write a novel. And so in 2015, I really got started heavily working on this next book that will be coming out hopefully fall 2021. And we were not able to go out for um, a sale until 2017. So for years, I was sort of just like working behind the scenes. I would send the pages to my agent. She would respond, Um, And then when we did go out for the sale, she said that she had been following a new editor named Nicole Counts. And I was her first fiction acquisition, actually. And so we did not go out to like a big uh, auction or anything like that. It was just um, she selected one editor. She sent her the books and she bought them. And so it really, it was sort of a shocking moment for me because up until that time, I had faced just extreme rejection for years and years. And then things got a little bit easier, uh, but the battle was still not over. <laughs> there are still a lot of things you have to fight for and lots of rejection to face.
0: And I don't think a lot of people understand or realize how much marketing authors have to do for themselves now. It's much different than it used to be. And I must say, you do an excellent job.
4: Thanks, Mandy. Um, I I really enjoy this aspect of being an author. I, I was always someone who was creative in other modes, not just in writing. So my Instagram account has really grown over the past year. Um, When the book came out, I had around 1,000 followers, and now I have a little over 8,000. And in two years' time, I mean, I think that's pretty good growth, but I think it serves as sort of a meeting space where readers of the book can come together. And I really like um, being able to interact with readers in that way. Uh, But it has not... It's been pretty draining at times. I put together my own book tour Um, I did not get a stipend or a budget from my publisher at the time. I was an unknown. I had a short story collection. And so back when we were able to tour and do bookstore readings and things like that, I put together a tour at different community centers, at different universities, um, different galleries. And I did a lot of spaces that are not normally thought of as reading spaces. And I think the book started to gain traction that way. Um, I've done I've done collaborations. I've worked with local artists. I had a graphic designer named Alyssa Mora. She created limited edition Sabrina and Karina book plates, which I signed um, and we delivered to different bookstores in town. Um, And that was to help with the fact that I can't sign books in person right now. I think it's really fun to be creative with your marketing. And it's a great way to connect with your readers, but it is a lot of work. And I think authors need to know that it's, it's a job on top of all the other jobs. And so you have to find ways to budget how you're going to approach your marketing.
0: Yeah, both financially and with time management. Is there a book you would like to see everyone read?
4: Well, I, I really am a big fan of a book called The Rain God by Arturo Islas. And The Rain God was a book that I was exposed to as an undergraduate studying Chicano literature. And I had never read um, a book from the perspective of a Chicano that was written in this kind of style. Um, Arturo Islas's prose, is it's really reminiscent to me of Faulkner. Um, he He works in that realist space. It's just very exquisite. And he was the first Chicano to get a publishing contract from a major house and it wasn't until 1991. And then shortly after he died from complications of HIV. Um, And so I always told myself, if I ever made it as an author, I would try to get more people to know about The Rain God, um, because I think it's an important book. And I wish he would have been able to live long enough to see it go out into the world the way that it has now.
0: And I'll put a link to that book in the show notes. You were featured in a recent advertisement for PEN America alongside authors such as Tayari Jones, John Lithgow, Neil Gaiman, Anita Hill, Anne Patchett, Britt Bennett, Alan Cumming, Wajahad Ali, and Jennifer Egan. This video was a nationwide effort to combat disinformation during this past election season. Can you share with our listeners the mission of PEN America, please? You know, I,
4: so I love PEN America. I'm a member. PEN America is an international organization um, that is dedicated to the freedom of expression and supporting the rights of artists and activists and writers and journalists. They do a lot of work um, supporting journalists. Um, they have a yearly awards uh, cycle where they, they acknowledge you know the new work that's coming out. Um, they also have um, a really robust uh, translation leg, they have the Pen- or they have the Penn World Voices Festival, and so they 're just a great organization um, to pay attention to, to get involved with, to donate to also when the pandemic hit, and so many writers such as myself were out of work because a lot of the ways that we earn our income is through uh, large scale events, teaching workshops, things that are done in person. Before we had started to pivot to online, Pen America was giving out grants to artists who were in need of emergency support. And so they're just such a spectacular organization. And I think that it would be it would be a smart thing to do if you familiarize yourself and and become a member if you can.
0: Yeah, so many authors depend on multiple streams of income. And with that in mind, would you like to tell us a little about being on the faculty for the Tin House Summer Workshop?
4: Yeah, it's been so wonderful. So I taught a week-long workshop for Tin House over the summer, and I just did a craft intensive um, yesterday or, or two days ago, in fact. Um, so every once in a while, I'll teach like a one-day class for Tin House, and I teach, I teach these intensive Um, at different centers. I'm I'm teaching class coming up on place and setting for Catapult. I also teach for Quayley. They're a literary organization in New York City. And I find it's really helpful for me as a writer to teach because it allows me to be re-inspired. You know, I have to go out and gather information for my students and bring it to them. And the process of that and the process of helping others uh, learn about something they're passionate about, it really helps me as an artist focus on what's important to me. Um, also, occasionally from time to time on my Instagram, I will do a free workshop um, or a Q&A session. I did one a couple weeks ago, a Q&A, and I'm always delighted to interact with my followers in that way because I know not everyone has money lying around to take workshops. And so every once in a while, I like to do something free.
0: Well, it has been a delight speaking with you, Carly, and thank you for using your platform to speak out about social and political injustices. There are many who don't, and while I understand that they're concerned for losing readers, I think it's really important that we encourage conversations about these issues. Uh, Thank you for being here. You've been a delight, and I'm looking forward to reading your next book.
4: Oh, thank you, Mandy. And thank you for doing the same. And I'm so excited about the podcast and I I cannot wait to listen.
0: You can find Kali on Instagram at Kali Maya, K-A-L-I-M-A-J-A and on her website at com. And thank you for listening. Remember, buy local, read global, support your local indie bookshop. I'll see you around the corner. For updates about the show, make sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mandy Jackson Beverly.